Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the October 24th meeting of the San Francisco County Transportation Authority Board. I'm Rafael Mandelman. I serve as chair of the board. Our vice chair is Mirna Melgar. I want to thank Jaime Echevery from SFGov TV, and our clerk today is Angela Sao. Madam Clerk, will you please call the roll? Yes, Chair. Um, Commissioner Chan? Yes. Chan present. Commissioner Dorsey? Dorsey present, Commissioner Ingardio. Ingardio president, um, Ingardio present. Um, Mandel, um, Chair Mandelman? Present. Mandelman present. Vice Chair Melgar? Melgar present. Um, Commissioner Peskin? Peskin present. Uh, Commissioner Preston? Preston present. Commissioner Ronan? Ronan present. Commissioner Safai? Safai absent. Commissioner Stephanie? Stephanie present, Commissioner Walton. Walton present, we have quorum. Thank you, uh, Madam Clerk. I think you have a public comment announcement. Yes, thank you, Chair. For members of the public interested in participating in this board meeting, we welcome your attendance here in person in the legislative chamber, room 250 in City Hall. Or you may watch cable channel 26 or 99, depending on your provider, or stream the meeting live at www sfgovtv.org. For those wishing to make public comment remotely, the best way to do so is by dialing 415-655-0001. And when prompted, entering the access code 2660-908-7338. And then press pound and pound again. You will be able to listen to the meeting in real time. When public comment is called for the item you wish to speak on, press star three to be added to the queue to speak. Do not press star three again or you will be removed from the queue. The system, when the system says your line is muted, unmuted, the live operator will advise you will be allowed two minutes to speak. When your two minutes are up, we will move on to the next color. Colors will be taken in the order in which they are received. Best practices are to speak slowly, clearly, and turn down the volume of televisions or radios around you. Public comment for items on this agenda will be taken first from members of the public in attendance in the legislative chamber and then afterwards from remote speakers queue on the telephone line. Thank you. Uh, thank you, um, Madam Clerk. Before calling our next item as chair, I want to invoke Rule 3.26 from the Rules of Order to limit total public comment per item to 30 minutes for today's meeting. Um, each speaker will have two minutes to speak on a given item unless I... Uh, indicate otherwise at the start of that item. Um, Madam Clerk, would you please call our next item? Item two, Chair's report. This is an information item. Um, thank you, Madam Clerk. Um, I want to begin this month with an appreciation for Senator Dianne Feinstein, whose memorial service was held here at City Hall earlier this month. With her distinguished career of firsts at the local and national levels from the first female board president and mayor of San Francisco to the first woman to serve as senator from California and many firsts and accomplishments in Congress, we're grateful for her trailblazing leadership and send condolences to her family and loved ones on her passing. Senator Feinstein served on the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee and on the Appropriations Committee where she advocated for infrastructure projects and the bipartisan infrastructure law. Earlier this year, she and Senator Padilla helped obtain $200 million for California high-speed rail and $30 million to help transition 
SFMTA's buses toward a zero emission fleet. And last year, she helped secure a $20 million federal raise grant for our Yerba Buena Island West Side Bridges project. Senator Feinstein also worked with Senator Gillibrand of New York and others to represent San Francisco's concerns about the safety of autonomous vehicles uh, on the previous AV Start Bill, a topic we'll be talking about uh, on today's agenda. Speaking of safety, it was just after our city's passage of our Vision Zero policy in 2013 that Tom McGuire joined SFMTA as its Director of Sustainable Streets. Now, almost 10 years later, we want to take this opportunity to thank him and wish him well as he prepares to join the Santa Clara County Valley Transportation Authority to lead their BART to Silicon Valley Phase II project. In the past decade, Tom led implementation of myriad Vision Zero initiatives, street innovations, and major capital projects <coughs> Excuse me. from the Van S BRT uh, and improvement and central subway projects to the JFK and Great Highway projects, protected bike lanes and slow streets, to street redesigns like Folsom Street, parklets as well as shared street as well as shared streets he also led permitting for scooters and bike share provision of taxi and accessible services and implementation of sf park it is a long and important list and never easy to shepherd change so thank you tom for your dedication and contributions to san francisco we're happy that you uh, are able to celebrate passage of ab 645 the speed safety camera bill capping your time in san francisco as you started it by advancing vision zero we wish you all the best at vta and finally, I am excited to be welcoming uh, the annual convening of the Self-Help Counties Coalition, California's 25 transportation sales tax agencies to San Francisco next week. It will be great to share our experiences and to learn from others about inclusive planning, innovative funding and technology, as well as collaborative project delivery with over 1,000 attendees from across California for the annual Focus on the Future conference. Then a week later, we look forward to welcoming visitors from Asia Pacific attending the APEC conference, and we hope everyone enjoys our city. Thank you in advance to our public transit operators and street teams for helping to manage all the changes to keep San Francisco moving during this busy time. And with that, I conclude my remarks. And let's see if there's any public comment in the chamber on the chair's report. I don't see any. Let's see if we have any remote public comment on item two. Checking for remote public comment. And there is no public comment. All right, public comment on item two is closed. Uh, Madam Clerk, could you please call item three? Item three, executive director's report. This is an information item. Madam Clerk, or Madam Clerk, Madam, Madam Executive Director. Clerk. The mic is not, oh, here we go. Good morning, Chair and Commissioners. I begin with a quick update from a couple of updates from the regional level. Uh, the MTC, Metropolitan Transportation Commission, is seeking feedback on potential transportation revenue measures for 2026. Over the past year, uh, staff have been conducting rounds of uh, out outreach, stakeholder engagement, uh, to explore the possibility of a uh, bill that could authorize 2026 or beyond measures for transportation. Feedback collected to date has indicated um, that there's interest in some potential expenditures relating to transit transformation, uh, safe and complete streets, and the like, as well as uh, on the table might be some revenue sources, including sales tax, potentially a payroll tax, or mileage-based fee, among others. Uh, MTC has commissioned a second poll of registered 
excuse me, voters, uh, with results expected by mid-November. Uh, this would be in time for engaging with a potential author in the state legislature to potentially, again, carry a bill next year. Uh, we will certainly keep you posted on that. In the meantime, we've also been collaborating with MTC on a Bay Area travel survey as in years past, this time together with Santa Clara VTA. Uh, it's a major survey designed to learn more about how people are traveling uh, throughout the region and particularly in San Francisco for us. Uh, this will include information about uh, work and non-work uh, trends in travel, telecommuting, transit use, online shopping, and the like. Uh, it will be used to support a number of efforts in the region and here in San Francisco uh, relating to our congestion management program and travel demand management strategies. So again, please look forward to those results later this year. In addition, uh, Commissioner Peskin and I, among others, joined the Bay Area Council MTC in the Port of San Francisco for a great waterfront tour of, uh, on a ferry tour of the waterfront. It's a conceptual ferry network that they're looking at, uh, connecting the ferry building, Mission Bay, Mission Rock, Petro, Power Station, Candlestick, Sh Hunters Point Shipyard, and potentially points even further south along the peninsula. Um, the Water Emergency Transportation Agency, WETA, is developing a shared vision for such a potential ferry network, uh, as well as across the bay uh, for 2050, including the level of service um, and extent of operations locally within San Francisco. The service vision will uh, be a foundation for WETA's business plan, and we anticipate this will be brought back to the WETA board uh, for consideration this winter. We'll certainly keep you posted on that as well. One of the first parts of the network, I, I should have also mentioned, would include Treasure Island uh, to support that development as well. Turning to local issues, um, as you may recall, we've been looking at studying carpool and transit uh, lanes along the 101-280 corridor. This includes the northbound 280 extension, touching down onto King Street. Uh, this project is entering an outreach phase. Uh, the idea would be to continue some managed lanes that are under development uh, further south in the peninsula. Uh, San Mateo is studying the four miles from th Highway 380 to the county line, and we're picking the corridor up at the county line. Uh, we have been working together with San Mateo and Caltrans, as well as SFMTA, on potential designs and traffic analyses. And this fall, we will conduct some outreach meetings, including town halls um, and neighborhood uh, gatherings to provide feedback and guide our design and evaluation. Uh, folks can learn more at sfcta.org freeway. Now turning to some project delivery updates, we had a very happy event uh, in late September at the Balboa Park Capuso and Upper Yard Plaza opening celebration. I joined Commissioner Safai, Treasurer Fiona Ma, Senator Scott Weiner, and BART Chair Janice Lee uh, together to celebrate with Mission Housing related companies and BART uh, this idea, the new transit-oriented housing development and open space plaza adjacent to the Balboa Park BART station. Uh, the Capuso will be home to 131 new affordable housing units and includes a beautiful new plaza to serve as a transit hub and public open space uh, that will benefit residents and transit passengers alike. Uh, San the, the TA was very pleased to to have contributed $950,000 in sales tax funds for the plaza that includes a path, accessible path to the passenger loading areas, seating, lighting, security cameras, and landscaping throughout. 
Um, as well, on the uh, update on the quick builds, we're glad to see SFMTA continue to make progress on implementing quick build safety projects such as the Lake Merced quick build, which is under construction, the Hyde Street quick build uh, that was approved by SFMTA board in mid-October, and MTA is preparing to begin construction on Hyde Slope Boulevard and Lincoln Way quick builds. So SFMTA has uh, also launched a dashboard that shows how a high injury network uh, progress map is is evolving, and folks can take a look at that at sfmta.com/quickbuild. Again, see, all of these projects are also supported by our sales tax as well as our Prop D TNC tax funds. Another update on Page Street, the neighborway construction has been completed there, and that was supported by our Prop AA vehicle registration fee funds. This is SFMTA and Public Works uh, recently wrapping up the final uh, items on that Page Street neighborway project between Webster and Goff. It uh, constructed some sidewalk extensions, rain gardens, and traffic-calmed intersections at Page and Buchanan Streets. Uh, these improvements shorten crossing distances and slow down turning vehicle traffic, improving overall pedestrian safety and comfort, uh, and this built upon the Page Street Bikeway Improvements pilot, which was completed in 2020 in support of Page Slow Street. Um, finally, I was pleased to help uh, present some keynotes at the recent ITS World Congress remotely that was taking place in Suzhou, China, and there uh, wanted to share some of our experience with applying technology to our mobility and uh, citywide goals. Also participated in the USDOT's ARPA slash I workshop. This is uh, in the vein of the DARPA, as you'll recall back in the day, um, initiative uh, using deep um, collaborations and, and applying technology into uh, deeply applied research efforts in the vein of the defense, energy, and public health sectors, which have their own ARPA initiatives. And this ARPA in initiative is for infrastructure, and it was authorized in the uh, in uh, bipartisan infrastructure law. So we look forward to participating um, in those efforts uh, nationwide. And with that, I'm happy to take any questions. Um, thank you, Madam Executive Director. Let's see if we have any public comment on your report. I don't see any in the chamber. Let's see if we have any remote. Checking for remote public comment. And there is no public comment. All right, public comment on item three is closed. Uh, Madam Clerk, please call item four. Item four, approve the minutes of the October 17, 2023 meeting. This is an action item. All right, let's see if we have any public comment on item four. If you're in the chamber and have any, come forward. Let's see if we have any remote public comment on the minutes. Checking for remote public comment on item four. And there is no public comment. All right, public comment on item four is closed. Is there a motion to approve item four? The minutes uh, moved by Peskin. Is there a second? Seconded by Dorsey. Madam Clerk, please call the roll. Commissioner Chan? Chan, I. Commissioner Dorsey? Dorsey, I. Commissioner Engardio? Engardio, I. Chair Mandelman? Aye. Mandelman, I. Vice Chair Melgar? Aye. Melgar, I. Um, Commissioner Peskin? Aye. Peskin, I. Commissioner Preston? Preston, I. Commissioner Ronan? Ronan, I. Commissioner Stephanie? 
Stephanie I. Commissioner Walton? Walton I. Uh, the minutes are approved. Uh, thank you, Madam Clerk. Please call uh, the consent agenda items five through nine. Items five through nine comprise the consent agenda. Staff is not planning on to present these items, but is available, available for questions. Thank you. Is there a motion to approve the consent agenda? Moved by Melgar, second by Walton. I think we can take that same house, same call, without objection. The motion passes. Um, Madam Clerk, please call item 10. Item 10, San Francisco Municipal Transportation Agency Paratransit Fleet Electrification Update Report. This is an information item. And we have Bonnie Jean Von Crow, um, SFMTA Building Progress Public Affairs Manager. Such a title. FMTA's Building in Progress Program Public Affairs Manager, and I'm happy to be with you this morning to provide an update on our paratransit electrification process. Um, for those who are less familiar, our paratransit fleet is a um, van and taxi program um, for people with disabilities that are unable to take our Muni service. Unlike Muni service, which runs on fixed routes, our paratransit service is a door-to-door -door program from origin to destination. Um, we've been providing this service for about 40 plus years, and um, we serve, uh, last year we served approximately 500,000 um, trips per year. So I'm here before you today because as part of our Prop K funding request, um, part of that request is to provide continuing, continuing updates on the electrification process for our paratransit fleet. Um, and that both looks at vehicle procurement, but also charging infrastructure at our facilities, um, maintenance and storage of our vehicles, and then of course funding and other risks. Just a little bit of background, our paratransit electrification is part of our larger building progress program, which is a two plus billion dollar program, capital program to modernize and electrify the SFMTA's facilities. Paratransit electrification fits into that program. So we have, um, we have one pillar of the program is modernization. So looking at SFMTA's aging facilities from that perspective and sequencing them appropriately, and then marrying that with the electrification requirements and regulations for 100% zero emissions Muni fleet, which um, we intend to include paratransit in that as part of it. Another pillar of the program is of course public outreach. Um, our facilities are in neighborhoods in some cases for over 100 years and we are planning for the next 100 years. 
Uh, to talk a little bit more specifically about the overall electrification program, so paratransit electrification is not a standalone project. You can see a number of projects as part of that program, um, leading with uh, the Kirkland Yard electrification. That'll be our first major yard retrofit to electrify the Kirkland Yard to support battery electric buses. Um, prior to that, we will be um, in the run-up to the Kirkland pro project, um, implementing chargers, um, pilot programs at both our Woods and Islaus Creek Yards. We're excited to have received FTA funding um, in uh, $30 million for those pilot programs. And then upcoming, our Presidio Yard project, which is both a modernization and an electrification project, as well as Islaus Creek electrification and paratransit electrification as well. Um, overall, our paratransit fleet goals are to provide service, safe, reliable service for our seniors and disabled patrons. Um, we are looking at <clears throat> um, transitioning the fleet to a completely electric fleet, but um, we want to make sure that we have the facilities in place to do so. So with the prior funding allocation request from Prop K funding, we've been able to replace 17 gas-powered um, vehicles um, in the last fiscal year, but that funding allocation also included um, funding for one electric van. And so that's, we're excited to, looking forward to procuring that um, in the next, uh, uh, next fiscal year, hopefully. Um, currently, the paratransit fleet includes 132 vehicles. That's 111 of those cutaway vans, like you see in the picture, and then 21 minivans. And those both have useful lives of, uh, for cutaway vans, five years, and then for the minivans, four years, respectively, according to FTA guidelines. Um, when we think about electrifying the paratransit fleet, um, we look at the uh, California Air Resources Board guidelines, the CARB guidelines for fleet electrification. They do have a requirement that the, um, the SFMTA is working to comply with um, to electrify our fleet by 2040. And a certain number of paratransit vehicles fit into that guideline. So um, specifically, our larger 68 Ford EV40 universals, which are our larger group vans, those weigh over 14,000 pounds and would be regulated by the CARB guidelines. So those are our vans that take um, seniors to uh, you know, senior facilities, or adult daycare facilities, day, day healthcare facilities. So those are the vans we use for that, and those are regulated under the CARB guidelines. However, we are looking at the possibility of electrifying our entire paratransit fleet and how we can um, fit that into our overall fleet procurement planning and uh, facilities planning. Uh, over the past year, we have been test evaluating our various vehicles that are on the market today. So to date, we've evaluated the Turtle Top and the Ford EV. Both of those vehicles uh, sit too low to the ground for our San Francisco topography. So basically, they scrape the pavement as they're going over our hills. So we are looking forward to testing the Lightning ZEV3 in the coming months, but to date, we have not found a vehicle that is operational 
on our unique environment. Um, so that is one of the risks associated with paratransit. And the other is price per vehicle. So paratransit electri uh, electric vehicles are considerably more expensive than our gas-powered vehicles. They run about 350 to 375,000 per vehicle. And that's mostly because um, currently they're built as gas-powered vehicles and then are retrofitted to be electric vehicles. So we do look forward, Ford has a vehicle that's being developed from the ground up as an electric paratransit vehicle, and we look forward to that hopefully bringing prices down in terms of cost per vehicle. Uh, in February 2022, the SFMTA completed its battery electric bus facilities master planning process, and that baselined our projects, and we looked at sequencing for our charging infrastructure, identifying power requirements, and looking at that schedule so that we are marrying both our electrification of our um, of our vehicles into our facilities planning process that already existed around modernization of our yards. And so paratransit is being woven into that overall planning process. And we've learned quite a bit in the past year regarding power requirements um, at, our, at our facilities and the sequencing of our yards in concert with our um, vehicle procurement needs. Looking at paratransit specifically where it is today, we lease facilities in Brisbane. We have a number of facilities that we lease there. And our goal with the paratransit fleet is to house it at a permanent SFMTA facility. And we, it is also, you know, that would save us costs and also saves cost in terms of service, right? Our vehicles deadhead in and out of Brisbane right now. So if we can bring them up to, into the city, that's a key consideration for us. We are not looking at building a new facility or acquiring new land, but really looking as part of our facilities planning process as we upgrade facilities, modernize them, and electrify them, where can we identify space for our paratransit fleet? And we are currently looking at a number of options. Our Presidio yard is one option that's currently being studied. Our Woods yard was suggested for our paratransit fleet back in 2017 during our facilities framework planning process and then we also are analyzing that option at our Potrero yard although that is a secondary option that we're looking at there. So we're currently reviewing sort of the sequencing and timing of our overall facilities planning and how we can interweave paratransit into that. Really the electrification of the paratransit fleet is dependent on having facilities available that can charge that fleet and have space to store it and maintain it. Um, you know, risks that we've looked at in the past year and as we work to electrify our facilities include the power requirements at the facility, you know, the green infrastructure infrastructure needed to charge our electric buses and paratransit vehicles and what would be needed both on and off-site, looking at PG&E in terms of timing and their capacity, and then of course funding challenges um, for the overall program. Uh, funding advocacy is absolutely required as part of the Building Progress Program. As I mentioned, we were granted uh, $30 million in FTA bus and bus facilities grants um, this past year uh, to do those two pilot projects at Islayas Creek and Woods, which will really kick off, well, it will build on the existing chargers that are at those facilities that help to serve the pilot uh, battery electric bus vehicles that are on our streets today and will allow us to expand that program. Um, and we will continue to apply for um, 
federal funding, as well as there will be a number of local funding requests for a number of these yards uh, before you in the coming months, um, and, uh, and those are critical to our paratransit electrification process. In terms of critical path next steps, um, over the next 18 months, the SFMTA is um, hiring a consultant to do a study on market, uh, market and cost analyses. And so we will be looking during this time frame at both the paratransit fleet, so doing that evaluation of additional vehicles, and also looking at um, design guidelines for a facility for our paratransit, as well as looking at location um, analysis for where we can put that fleet in our overall uh, facilities planning process. Um, as we look out three to five years, we do um, look at finalizing uh, some of those specifications, finalizing charging requirements, and then identifying the funding gaps that are in the program. Um, by the end of that time frame, we do plan to be able to um, charge up to 20% of the SFMTA fleet. So if we have 20% of our fleet that is battery powered, um, we will be able to accommodate that within five years based on our pilot level facility upgrades. Um, and then looking longer term, 10 to 15 years, that is the time frame for constructing those infrastructure, modernizing those facilities to be able to store the electric fleet and then looking specifically at um, fleet procurement and and integrating with that process in terms of vehicle requirements. So finally, um, we have comp completed the feasibility analysis to integrate paratransit into our larger facilities planning process, um, and then are working to integrate that as well with our, our fleet procurement program. So now really at the stage of identifying specifics in terms of facilities, locations, and needs for the fleet. Um, we will be coming to this uh, body uh, in, as part of the 5YPP um, funding requests for a number of our facilities in the coming months. So this is only the beginning of a conversation around our fleet electrification and our facilities electrification. And a number of those projects correspond directly to, our electri uh, to electrifying our facilities for these fleet needs. Thank you, and I'm happy to answer any questions. I also have other members of our team here as well to answer specifics as well. Thank you for the presentation. Um, Vice Chair Melgar. Thank you, and thank you for that very thorough overview. I appreciate it. Um, I was, just a quick question. I was wondering if any of the facilities that you listed, um, Potrero, um, Wood, um, if any of those are in um, AB 617 communities and makes them eligible for like state funding to do this transition? Yes, some of them are. Which ones? Woods most likely. Yeah. So does that make it more attractive to do it there, to cite it there? You know, I mean, I have Jonathan Ruers here, okay. but what I would say in terms of our facilities planning process, Woods is actually one of our later facilities mm -hmm. to go in the process I in see. terms of the modernization of Woods, but it does make it an attractive place. Um, I don't know if you want to add to that. Um, what I would add, uh, Jonathan Ruers, Chief Strategy Officer with the MTA. I mean, first, I would like to thank this commission for asking these questions because I think this request forced us to look at this comprehensively, which you got in the presentation. So as you know, I'm always happy to, to answer questions. 
We are, so what we've done at this point, what you saw today is we know we have to electrify the paratransit fleet. And so we're looking at various options and we'll sort of go through a process of elimination. So funding capability, ease of construction, you know, as the Board of Supervisors, I know all of you have been very focused on our issues around PG&E and PG&E infrastructure. That is one of the biggest unknown questions that we can't answer with regard to schedule. But yes, funding availability, feasibility of construction, and power load will be the key components of our decision making. Thank you. All right. Well, let's open this item to public comment. If there's anyone in the chamber who'd like to come forward and talk to us about item 10, please come forward. And if not, let's see if we have any remote public comment on item 10. Checking for remote public comment. Hi, caller, your minutes begin. Hello, good morning, this is Barry Toronto. I didn't really hear the presenter discuss much about how we're gonna electrify the, um, the, <coughs> the ramp tech if we um, excuse me, there's something like, there's something like 40 of them, and sooner or later, uh, they have to go to, um, uh, zero emissions with these, with these vehicles. There's something like $70,000 to buy new, uh, as gas powered, and they use a lot of, of, uh, fuel, and they also require a lot of maintenance. And the, the drivers, um, don't have a spare vehicle at this point. If the, if the vehicle is out of service. So it would be great to find some incentives or subsidies to help fund the transition to an electric, electric fleet of ramp taxis. Also, whether it be able to use the charging stations at, uh, the, at these muni yards as the presenter had shown and described in, uh, during her presentation. So it would be great if you, someone asked these questions because I think taxis do take a brunt of these pickups of ramp taxis because they have, they have, they do get generous incentives, but in some cases it's not enough. So I'd appreciate it if, uh, if, the, if the presenter could address how they're going to incorporate uh, taxis into the electric, electrification program. Thank you. Thank you, caller. There is no additional public comment. All right, public comment on item 10 is closed. Madam Clerk, could you please call item 11? Item 11, autonomous vehicle update. This is an information item, and I do have to say we received public comment, which is posted on the website. All right, thank you, Madam Clerk. Um, and I guess uh, we will start with um, breaking news. Um, if you look at the Chronicle, uh, there is the news reported that uh, Cruz's driverless testing and deployment permit is being suspended by the DMV. So, um, <clears throat> sort of puts new, uh, I don't know, a new spin on this hearing that we're having here. I do wanna um, start by thanking uh, of course, our, our TA staff, our MTA staff, um, uh, former Chair Peskin, President Peskin, for um, uh, his diligent um, attention to this over a long, long time. Um, we had planned to have, and will continue with, an information item on the latest developments with the deployment of driverless AV 
in San Francisco. Um, we have presentations uh, by staff from the TA, the MTA, San Francisco Fire Department. I want to thank Jean-Paul Velez, Julia Friedlander, and Deputy Chief Latrup for being here and for your hard work and collaboration. Um, again, I want to thank President Peskin. Uh, I want to thank the Mayor's Office, Alex Sweet, the Transportation Advisor, for their collaboration and leadership. This is been uh, one of those areas where I actually think for the most part, uh, the legislative and the executive have been able to work very collaboratively um, and represent uh, the needs of San Franciscans. Um, together we are working with the AV companies, state and federal regulators, and the broader SF community on how to safely implement this new technology while maintaining and advancing citywide goals. We're also being joined by Phil Koopman, Associate Professor of Electrical and Computer Engineering at Carnegie Mellon University, who will offer expert perspectives on AV safety after the staff presentation. And I think we're going to start with John Paul Velez. Um, thank you, Chair Mendelman. Um, this presentation today will provide you, um, will provide the board a summary of uh, our experience. Go ahead. SFGov, please share slides. Uh, okay, we'll provide uh, you know a summary of uh, our experience here in San Francisco with drivers' autonomous vehicles, uh, leading up to today's events. I hope that we will provide a better context for the news that uh, the president, the chair, just, just shared. Uh, again, yeah, this is uh, a collaborative work, uh, beginning with uh, the agencies here represented, the TA, SFMTA, and the fire department, but again, also partner agencies like SF Planning, uh, SFPD, uh, the Department of Emergency Management, uh, the city's attorney's office, and the mayor's office. Uh, next slide, please. Yes, so in this first section of our presentation, we will provide a general background of uh, the regulatory framework and the local policy context that kind of set up uh, AP operations here in San Francisco. Uh, next slide, please. Okay, so let's start with our local context and goals for urban mobility in San Francisco. Uh, as you all know, we have a very dense urban environment with a lot of competing uses for our road space, which is very uh, limited. So as a result, uh, local transportation policy is very intentional about leveraging that very limited resource, uh, that road space, to get people and goods where they need to go efficiently, uh, safely, uh, and equitably. Uh, next slide, please. Yes, there we go. Uh, AVs are not the first mobility innovation to arrive to San Francisco. We have over a decade of experience integrating new mobility services into our transportation system. In 2017, both the TA and SFMTA adopted uh, a set of 10 principles for emerging mobility uh, services and technologies that provided us uh, city agencies as well as uh, private mobility innovators trying to come into San Francisco with a set of guidelines, a clear set of lenses through which we, the city, evaluate the benefits uh, and the impacts of new mobility services. So as you see on the slide, we have uh, kind of core values like safety, like transit, 
uh, congestion, uh, accessibility, things that we're looking very closely into. They also include accountability, uh, e sharing relevant data uh, with city agencies, and also, very importantly, collaboration with city officials. And the idea of these principles being that we will use local policy and regulations to maximize the benefits of new mobility services uh, while mitigating the unintended consequences and negative impacts that these services may bring onto uh, our general goals, mobility goals. Uh, next slide, please. However, uh, in the case of commercial AVs or robo-taxis, it is not that simple. Because just like TNCs, like Uber, like Lyft, uh, San Francisco has no direct permitting authority over commercial AV passenger services. Instead, uh, AVs are regulated at both the federal and the state levels. Uh, at the federal level, the main player is the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, NHTSA, which establishes, monitors, and enforces vehicle safety standards. Uh, there is no binding uh, federal AV regulation as of yet, but NHTSA tracks AV safety by gathering uh, crash information on all AV crashes, uh, as well as by conducting safety investigations. Here in California in 2012, uh, uh, state law required the DMB to develop AV regulations, uh, so the first set of regulations was adopted by, uh, in 2014 by the DMB for testing AVs with a safety driver, and then in 2018, additional regulations were adopted for permitting a driverless tasting, so without a driver, and also for full service deployment to passengers. Uh, in turn, uh, the California Public Utilities Commission, which regulates commercial passenger services at large, including TNCs, as we mentioned before, developed uh, programs for AV passenger services in 2018 and 2020, and these permits mirror the DMVs in terms of with or without uh, a driver, and then a testing phase and a full commercial deployment phase. Uh, locally, SFMTA manages our streets and our curbs. Uh, the TA measures and develops strategies to manage congestion. Uh, and both SFMTA and the TA collect uh, Prop D, the local right-of-hill tax that AV services, as well as TNC services, again, must pay uh, for their operations and their impact in the city. Uh, the board can pass resolutions, like the AV resolution that this board adopted in December of 2012. Uh, and a few land use policies that may affect uh, AB operations. But we largely play uh, an advisory role in relation to AB San Francisco, that is, providing input to regulators based on our direct experience on the ground. Uh, next slide, please. So uh, this regulatory framework that I just described has delivered a very active AV sector here in California. There are over 40 companies testing with or without drivers across the state, uh, and there are four companies approved for driverless deployment <laughs> uh, in the state. Uh, two of those, the most prominent, Cruz and Waymo, have deployments here in San Francisco. All of this making San Francisco one of the main locus of driverless activity in the country, as well as internationally. In 2012, in 2022, Cruz and Waymo completed an estimated uh, seven million driverless miles uh, in San Francisco streets, which is remarkable. Uh, to provide you some context, annually there are 3,500 million miles driven by all vehicles 
in San Francisco, meaning that last year's driverless uh, AVs amounted to 0.2% of all the miles driven by vehicles in San Francisco. Adding their figures, the provider's figures from this year, both companies report to be at around 5 million driverless uh, miles in San Francisco currently. Uh, overall, we believe that the success of the AV sector requires both AV technology and the regulatory framework to mature in a way uh, that leverages our experiences on the ground, uh, what we learn from operations on our city, uh, and from uh, what, we're here, what we have identified to be regulatory gaps uh, in the current framework that perhaps were hard to conceive eight, nine years ago when these regulations were first created, but now that we have uh, the uh, benefit of experience, they're much more evident. Uh, and with that, I hand it over to my colleagues, uh, Julia Freelander and the Deputy Chief to present their next section. Thank you, John Paul, Chair Mandelman, and uh, Commissioners. Um, I want to just take us back a moment to 2017, which was the year when then-Mayor Ed Lee and then-Transportation Director Ed Riskin uh, first identified that this development of AVs that was happening on our roads in San Francisco was something important for us to pay attention to. The industry's been working on their systems since that time, since before then, and the regulatory uh, structure has been under development, and we have been at the table with regulators and with the industry ever since. Um, as stewards of the San Francisco streets, our MTA kind of highest level goal is to make sure that AVs meet the same standard of professional defensive driving that we expect of our transit operators in San Francisco and to ensure that state and federal regulators who have the regulatory power are aware of what we are seeing on our streets and uh, have that information available to them. So next slide, please. Oh, we're here already. So the first question is, what is the role of AVs in improving street safety? And we have many reasons for optimism about this. We see much good and safe driving on our streets by AVs, but we also have uh, reasons for concern. Um, it's important to notice that the companies are not all the same. We have three leading companies in San Francisco. They are doing different engineering uh, to try to achieve this fantastic, frankly, uh, challenge. And they're all having somewhat different results. Um, it's very important to note that those differences in engineering may lead to different results. So. Uh, engineering is a factor in a number of things that we've been asking of the industry over time. We've been asking them to pay attention to uh, pick up, safe pickup and drop off of passengers, as well as obviously um, safe uh, compliance with the vehicle code in general. And I think one of the things that we have learned is that the regulators uh, in the early days really thought that AVs would comply systematically always with all provisions of the vehicle code. And we have found that that has not always been the case. And when I make a mistake, when I, for example, uh, go through a red light, uh, it's only my mistake that we're seeing. We obviously look at this from a system perspective as we use our Vision Zero tools to try to improve our, our roads, but it's fundamentally my error. If there is a single driver of a fleet of 300 or 500 or 1,000, that both reflects the good driving that the AVs are learning and also is the potential for errors being repeated throughout the fleet. So the 
effort to measure uh, the driving safety of AVs is very complex. Dr. Koopman will address that, and uh, I won't go into to further details on it. Let's move to the next slide. So I want to just um, note the question, like, when generally, when we're in our Vision Zero policy hat, we are looking at serious injuries and fatalities on our road, and that the, we use um, those uh, tragic events to guide our resources as we seek to make our roads safer and safer and easier for people to drive safely on. Um, in the world of AVs, we think that's not enough just to look at the uh, serious injury and fatal crashes. And the triangle on the right shows um, that the unsafe acts at the bottom, the near in the purple band, the near misses in the turquoise band, these things are often much more frequent than the serious injury and fatal collisions. And as this new technology is developing, we can't wait around for 10 years and see whether the serious injury and fatality crash rates come in the same. We have to look lower on the triangle. We have to pay attention to the things that are happening that may reflect um, safety, new safety hazards, um, things that result in less significant crashes, uh, things that um, may not result in crashes at all but are near misses. So um, there are some important examples of this um, that uh, we, we certainly know that the industry is looking at these events, but we think it's really essential that the regulators also be looking at these events. So let's move to the next slide. Okay, um, as you know, um, San Francisco was the first dense major city where uh, AVs had their safety operators taken out from behind the wheel. That was first with crews in the summer of 2022 and later with Waymo later in the year. And one of the things that we immediately noticed was that we started to get calls to 911 complaining about events on our roads. And we have been uh, collecting that information, the information submitted by members of the public, by our city employees on incidents where there is either uh, erratic driving and various driving errors, or uh, even more frequently, just unplanned stops in the middle of the right-of-way that both create hazards and also have other impacts on our roads, interfere with our transit, and as Deputy Chief Lepter will talk about, also interfere with our emergency response. All of these things need to be taken account of. We illustrate this here not to say that every one of these incidents is important and predicting the future, but some of them are quite important. And as of this time, no regulator is collecting information about these incidents that have not ripened into serious incidents. So let's go forward. So one of the key things that we have heard complaints about is AV interactions with pedestrians. And at the bottom right, you will, oh, I'll, since the video is moving on the top right, you will see this interaction with pedestrians that has raised serious concerns for us. Um, obviously, there was no injury there. This is a perfect example of something that did not result in an injury, but nonetheless, we need to take very, pay very close attention to. Um, because we have to ask ourselves, what does this kind of driving say about our effort to have safe routes to school? How do we as parents or as elders feel, do we feel safe in walking around in our streets um, with um, this kind of driving that does not yield uh, to other road users? 
Um, these kinds of interactions are not generally systematically captured by federal and state regulators. We are very grateful that just last week, NHTSA uh, opened a preliminary investigation into the cruise AV interactions with pedestrians, and obviously we've heard of further uh, action by the California DMV just this morning. We can move forward. So these are other kinds of uh, incidents where there has not been a serious injury, there has not been even in some cases a crash, but nonetheless where these incidents um, are signal important things for us to pay attention to. In the top left, the N. Judah car, where there was a near-miss collision when the cruise uh, vehicle entered uh, the trackway. Uh, fortunately, nobody was hurt. Fortunately, there was no impact, but this was obviously an, an, a huge red flag. I will say that, to our knowledge, we are not aware of an, a near-miss event like this recently, and so we appreciate that uh, Cruz has clearly paid attention to their interactions with rail vehicles, and we hope that there, we will not see incidents like that again. Um, similarly, on the bottom left, you see uh, an image of a Waymo vehicle that came very close to city workers who were working in the right-of-way. Um, we also know that Waymo has responded to that incident and has been doing work to, uh, on new methods for communicating to people on the street about what can be expected of them. The kind of unpredictability is one of the key factors that has uh, really uh, affected people as they interact with AVs on the streets. Um, unfortunately, there's obviously still work to be done. We are a pioneer city. Uh, and uh, as you see just on the bottom right, another incident, while this was not a rail vehicle, we saw two 38 Geary vehicles uh, line up in a 19-minute uh, delay in transit uh, as a result of this Waymo vehicle being stopped in the roadway. Unplanned stops have an impact on our overall transportation system, and they need to be, um, we need to pay close attention to those. We can move forward. So I'm going to turn it over to Deputy Chief Latrup. We have been, obviously, you've probably read in the papers about the many, many incidents affecting the fire department, and I'll turn it over. Hi, good morning, Chair Mandelman and Commissioners. Uh, Darius Latrup, Deputy Chief Operations, San Francisco Fire Department, and thank you, Julia. So just as a, a, a brief background of the fire department's interaction with the autonomous vehicles. Um, they were wise and they brought us in very early, uh, kind of detailed the technology to us and uh, allowed us to be involved in the development of what they called their first responder interaction plans. And we moved forward with expectations that this wonder technology would operate like a human driver and that our greatest concern would be uh, interacting with the vehicle after it had been in a major accident. Um, that did not, in fact, turn out to be the case. So as time went on and uh, the vehicles transitioned from having a assistance of a driver into test autonomous mode and into autonomous and commercial autonomous, uh, we saw a dramatic escalation of incidents. So the initial interaction we had um, of reporting out the rare, the rare instance through our uh, MTA liaison um, ramped up dramatically. Uh, our chief noticed uh, the dramatic increase and the level of interaction went to mine and my office and the deputy of operations. Um, and we uh, sought to have in, uh, a dialogue with the companies at the level of policy and uh, technology so that we could resolve these problems and the incidents continued to rise. 
looking at the problem, uh, we, we've kind of parsed it here into some larger statistical categories, but basically it comes down to four major problems. One was we were having interference at our fire stations, an inability to leave or return to our fire stations, which obviously uh, dramatically changes our response times. Um, these incidents were also taking a very long time to resolve, which I'll get to when we get to the problem-solving portion of it. The second piece would be uh, response interactions where the vehicles fail to yield or uh, as a response to emergency lights and sirens were just going dead in uh, the narrow roadways in the city of San Francisco, which obviously, again, leads to a dramatic increase in our response time. As my chief is fond of saying, minutes matter. Um, and so this was unacceptable to the membership of our fire department. Um, another category would be intrusion or interference in our emergency scenes. Um, this would be the, the vehicles literally driving into uh, the seat of a fire, crossing over fire hoses, uh, having near misses with uh, personnel. And then the last category would be that near miss personnel but in other contexts. So they don't seem to see first responders, firefighters, police officers any better than they see uh, civilians in some incidents. Uh, so we needed to address that. So the next slide. So with the next slide, we, we did manage to uh, gain engagement with people at the level of technologists or policy who could help us try to solve these problems. Um, and they asked us what our solutions would be to it. Uh, with that four categories of problems, we, we tried to broach four solutions. The obvious first one would be don't park in front of a firehouse. So that was some form of avoidance or geofencing. Um, and that uh, also kind of drove the conversation around uh, don't, not, not driving into emergency scenes or uh, getting in the way of a response. So that was our first ask. Our second ask was figure out a way to better comprehend lights and sirens um, and to yield and act as a human driver would. Uh, that's a work in progress. The third ask was a better way to communicate with, uh, with the remote advisor or customer service that they, they wanted us to interact with to get the vehicle to move if, if it did manage to obstruct us. Uh, you can see one of my battalion chiefs leaning into the window of a car. Uh, their first response was uh, use a phone number, use a QR code. Obviously, uh, when responding to a fire, most of my firefighters aren't holding a phone, carrying a phone, have a phone in their pocket. I would advise against it. Um, so they didn't have that technology available to them. And it required a multi-step radio communication to get in contact with hopefully the right person at the company. And it was long, and it was an ineffective process. The current process is the windows roll down, and there's a small microphone on the interior of the vehicle. And uh, first responder, whether police officer or traffic enforcement officer or, or fire fighter or fire officer, has to lean into the car to communicate with them to make um, our needs known on the scene. This is uh, a waste of resources. It takes them away from the job they're trying to perform. And as you can see, if this was an active roadway, not the middle of Shotwell, obstructed by two other fire engines, it can be a dangerous place to be. You don't want to be leaning into this vehicle. The final ask was, um, if all bets are off, is there a way for us to take over these vehicles and move them? Um, and so the company's got to work on these four asks. Next slide. So what has happened? Um, we have had a number of productive meetings uh, to, 
to kind of characterize the meetings that the fire department has been hosting with the AV companies and MTA and Department of Emergency Management and with uh, Parking and Transit. Um, it's, it's mostly been culture bridging. So their interpretation of the events, um, they, they show us video, they show us uh, their, their interpretation of what happened and what their proposed fix would be, and we kind of help clarify it for them, tell them uh, what we're actually looking for in an interaction with the vehicles. Uh, those have been fairly useful. Another track has been with our Department of Emergency Management, particularly Department of Emergency Communication, to set up uh, avoidance areas, and this is active and in early days, so they receive a page notification. Uh, they avoid areas of various size, depending on the complexity of the incident, whether people are going to be in the street. Um, and this process was moving forward. I hope that it will continue to move forward, um, even with today's ruling. I think it, it was bearing fruit, um, but we, we do have a long way to go, and thank you for your time. Thank you, Deputy Chief. Just a couple more. We can move forward. Okay. So um, you, uh, many of you likely are aware of the uh, incident that took place during outside lands uh, just in mid-August. Uh, and that where there were multiple vehicles that were stopped on the roadway in uh, North Beach. And this really has raised a significant questions for us about what the impact of AVs will be, how their resilience is going to hold up in a context of emergencies, whether they are routine emergencies like traffic lights being out or whether they are more significant emergencies like an earthquake. And we are particularly concerned about this because we have in fact had quite a number of incidents. This was one of the larger ones, but there are a number of incidents that affect many AVs or multiple AVs and therefore have more interference with our roadways. So we are communicating to regulators that we think that the disaster preparedness uh, issues need to be very closely looked at, especially, and we can move to the next slide. These issues need to be addressed. I think we have the next slide. Uh, before we have on our streets vehicles that have no human controls. So the vehicles on the left are the vehicles that we are seeing on our streets today. The industry is moving into the direction of having vehicles on our streets that uh, are, are much larger. They have different kind of safety issues and profile. And uh, these problems that we have been seeing, that we have been learning from, really need to be resolved before we have large numbers of vehicles like these that will be harder to move from our streets uh, if and when they have problems. And I do want to just reinforce um, what Deputy Chief Lettrup said. We, we have been saying for five years that we think the potential for AVs to improve safety on our roadways really depends on collaboration between the industry and local government, as well as state and federal government, and our doors are open to that. We think it is going to be essential in problem solving as we face these challenges on urban roadways. Thank you very much. I'll pass it back to uh, John Paul. Commissioner Peskin, did you want to jump in or did you? Uh, I can okay. wait. Thank you, Julia, Deputy Chief. Um, next slide, please. Um, 
Commissioners, all of the incidents and concerns presented in the last section have been documented digitally in numerous filings to both federal and state uh, regulators. Our advocacy on these issues, as Julia was describing, dates back to 2018 and has only grown in intensity, as summarized here on the right side of your screens. Uh, as AVs sought to expand their operations and move into driverless operations here in San Francisco. In these various filings, our core message has remained uh, consistent. We support AVs and we're rooting for them to succeed, but we, we also need for, for them to, number one, align, with, uh, align AV regulations with uh, stated California transportation policy goals. Number two, evaluate uh, the performance of AB providers considering their impact on the streets, that being on the safety of all road users, on the functioning of our transportation system, and on the provision of providing their services in an inclusive way. Uh, and number three, the technology needs to be deployed in an incremental manner, allowing providers, regulators, and city officials to learn from operations in small areas with small fleets uh, and at times of the day when conflicts would be minimal uh, before granting expansions to larger and more complicated areas of the city and more complicated areas of the, of the day. So, these expansions should also be granted only if providers meet key performance benchmarks on safety, on system impact, on disability access at each level of these uh, expansion uh, kind of steps. Uh, and they would need to be demonstrated uh, in public data filings that are submitted timely, reliably, and complete. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, however, in spite of all of our efforts documenting our various concerns and advocating for an approach to AB expansion that supports San Francisco's AB policy goals, I'm sorry, mobility goals, on August 10th, uh, the CPUC awarded permits to both Cruise and Waymo for unrestricted driverless commercial operations in San Francisco. That is basically all of San Francisco 24-7 and with no restriction on the size of their fleets. Uh, in response, working with the city's attorney's office, uh, our agencies filed a motion to stay within a week of that decision from the CPUC, and then a few weeks later, we uh, filed an application for rehearing on both uh, approvals. In that first week that followed the, the approval, following the August 10th approval, however, Cruz had a series of incidents, including the 10-vehicle failure in North Beach that Julia was just making allusion to, uh, and then a few days later, a crash with a fire truck while the fire truck while it's en route, sirens blasting uh, to attend an emergency. Uh, so this led the, uh, the California DMV to step in uh, and agree with Cruz that they would f have their fleet uh, operating in San Francisco pending an investigation. And then NHTSA at the federal level also began looking into these incidents. Since then, we have also seen various legislators uh, step in and ask questions of regulators. Uh, so we've had Speaker, Speaker Emerita Pelosi and Representative Mullen of San Mateo uh, file a joint letter to NHTSA seeking more data 
regarding local incidents and events like described in the prior section. Uh, then we also had Assemblymember Berner, uh, the chair of the Communications and Conveyance Committee in the Assembly, as along with five other Assembly members, uh, sending letters to both the DMB and the PUC, trying to better understand, trying to uh, understand how uh, these expansions were granted in San Francisco, given the experiences that we've had. And then finally, we had Assembly Member, uh, member Phil Ting convene a meeting with the California DMB and our agencies to discuss um, these events. Uh, next slide, please. Looking ahead, we are expecting a few rulemaking opportunities at both the federal and state levels, uh, through which we hope that we can help uh, advance, mature the existing regulatory frameworks. Uh, these were all slated to begin uh, formally this fall, but there is no clear schedule yet uh, publicly. Uh, we're also engaging uh, the legislator, the legislature, uh, and uh, we're setting up meetings with the DMB to better understand uh, their uh, initiatives for next year. Uh, and we're also scheduling briefings with key committees in the Assembly and the Senate to share our experiences and uh, exchange perspectives. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, going forward, our advocacy continues with priorities such as developing a more robust framework for certifying AV capabilities to operate on our streets. Uh, currently, permits are only are granted with only uh, self-certifications from the providers. Uh, we also want to see the ability to issue um, the ability to issue moving violations to AVs. Uh, adopted. Uh, we want to see our uh, recommending advocating for expansion and, and more transparent data reporting requirements for, again, incremental and performance-based expansion. Uh, we also want to see clear timelines for offering wheelchair-accessible AVs uh, and greater local roles in the development of the sector. Our teams also want to study these issues in depth so as to better inform the regulatory uh, and rulemaking opportunities ahead. And as part of that process, we're also seeking to strengthen our collaboration with industry, academia, NGOs, disability leaders, and other cities in California uh, and beyond. Next slide, please. Yes. Uh, I'd be remiss if I don't mention the Treasure Island AV shuttle that we inaugurated this summer which is a different type of vehicle and service from what we have focused here today. Uh, but it's also an AV service that is being piloted by our agencies. This AV shuttle is a first last mile service to the Muni 25 bus and the ferry, uh, operating a low density, low speed area, and where we have engaged local community since the <clears throat> beginning in service design, planning, implementation. The pilot service runs from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m., seven days a week. There's an actual attendant aboard the vehicle, and the vehicle is wheelchair accessible. So far, the service is popular, and we're committed to robust evaluation and reporting of the project. <coughs> Pardon me. Uh, the project is funded by the DOT, MTC, as well as the uh, Transportation Authority. Uh, my next slide. So yeah, as, as, as Julia was saying, as a parting thought, we want to reiterate that San Francisco stands ready to partner in the development of a more mature regulatory framework or regulatory frameworks. Uh, 
at all levels of government based on our unique experience and the expertise in local AV operations. Um, next slide. So thank you very much, uh, and now we're pleased to hand it over to Dr. Koopmend. Hi, I'll be, I'm uh, sharing my screen now. I assume you can hear me? Yep. Okay, and are you able to see the whole slide? It looks chopped on mine, but maybe it's... Uh... We can see it. Okay, all right, great. Hi, I'm Phil Koopman. I'm a professor at Carnegie Mellon University. I have been working on self-driving car safety for 25 years. And in those 25 years, we've seen it go from a graduate student uh, crazy experiment to impressive capabilities in public deployments. And, and you've all heard all the great promises, uh, which largely remain promises, but, but we're hopeful. Uh, I'm here to give some sort of reality check for policy decisions, because it's important to make policy decisions based on the truth of where we really are. Uh, it's okay to look at the, the promise, but you have to also look at the reality. And so I have seven slides, 10 minutes, I'm gonna go over some of the highlights here. First, the question is, are robotaxis safer? We've all heard these companies say, oh yeah, robotaxis are safer, the proof is in, we have our studies. That's not really where we are. There are some studies that show promising results on crashes, mostly property damage crashes, some very early studies on, on injury crashes, but they only count some of the injuries, not all the injuries. So it's very preliminary information, but the companies are selling on reducing fatalities and we're nowhere near ready to know how that's really gonna turn out. Now, why is this? Well, in general, in the US and also San Francisco data looks pretty close. Fatalities are about a once every 100 million mile kind of thing for human drivers, and that includes all the drunks, it includes all the distracted drivers. So if you're not, not drunk, you're not distracted, you can do a lot better than that. That's a lot of miles. And each company, as we heard earlier, has about 5 million miles. So we're you know, 95 more million to go before you're even close to knowing how this turns out. And the point is, we don't know how it turns out. The, uh, the studies that I mentioned have a lot of assumptions, we just don't know. Now, what's the issue here? Well, from a policy point of view, if you read the headlines, what you have is by analogy, you're running a 26 mile marathon, a mile and a half in you go, oh look, my, my split times look really good. I'm gonna give myself the gold medal. Well, well that's, that's what seems to be going on, but that doesn't make sense. We don't know yet. From a policy point of view, this is a little nuanced. What it means is you should not make policy decisions based on an assumption they will be safer, Rather, you should make policy decisions not knowing how the safety is gonna turn out. That's a really important point. Uh, next, one of the reasons that it's not clear how this is gonna turn out is that robotaxis make mistakes. There's more to safety than a lot of sensors. So in the early days, people would say, there's no way that this thing's gonna hit a big object in the road. It's not gonna run into a bus because we have lidars, we have cameras, we have radars, we have all these sensors. It's gonna see the bus and won't hit it. And yet, we saw in San Francisco, it did run into a bus. Well, how did that happen? Well, between the sensors and the wheels moving and the steering happening, there's a lot of computer software. And software is not perfect, especially if you're not following safety standards. It's hard to know where all the bugs are gonna be. And this is a bug that resulted in collision. Fortunately, no one was hurt, but it might not have turned out that way. So these things are going to have defects. People used to say they wouldn't fail the way humans do, but in fact, a lot of the pictures you saw are exactly the kind of mistakes people make as well. 
these things will fail just like humans fail, even if it's for different reasons. And so we need to figure out how that balance is going to turn out. And another related thing you hear is, oh, we have so many rides that were flawlessly and almost every interaction with the fire truck, we yielded to the fire truck and so on. Safety isn't about the good days. It's about the bad days. If you have one fatality per 100 million miles, you can go 90 million miles and those aren't the ones that matter. It's the one bad mile that matters. So when you listen to the stories and the experiences from a safety point of view, it's how often the bad days happen that matter, not the number of good days they happen to have. Important perspective to keep in mind. Next, I want to go down a quick list of overstated claims. So these are talking points from the industry in general, not necessarily the, the companies who are operating in San Francisco, but, but the industry in general tends to say these kind of things, and it's important to know where the reality is. They'll say, well, human drivers are terrible, therefore computers will be perfect, and, and I already discussed that. They'll also pull out, trot out this number, 94% of crashes due to human error. The NHTSA study doesn't actually say that. That's a misstatement of what the study says. Yes, it is true that humans are imperfect, but they're really remarkably good at avoiding the worst crashes, especially if they're not drunk and they're not distracted. Uh, they're really quite good. We'd like them to be better. I'd certainly love the number of fatalities to go down. But on an objective basis, it's really hard to be as good as a human driver. And computers have different failures. They lack common sense. Every time they see something they're not expecting, if they haven't been trained, the technology doesn't know what to do. That's how this technology works. It works on training, and something novel is always an issue. They're going to make mistakes as well because they have software and because they have problems with novelty. So we don't know how this is going to turn out. Next, we have 5 million miles of testing. Well, that sounds really impressive. 95 more million to go, and that includes the drunks. So we have a long road ahead of us. The big numbers are only a start. They're not the end. Now, another one I haven't hit on yet is we follow best practices. They'll say how safety is number one, and they spend a lot of engineering effort and so on. And for some of the companies, it is pretty clear to me that's true. For some of the companies, there's, a, there's more of a question mark. Uh, and the reason I say this is we have opacity. We don't actually know how good their engineering is. We just see what the outcomes are. Uh, and a key part of this, I've done safety design reviews across many industries. I've worked on aviation. I've worked on uh, building systems. I worked on chemical processing. I worked on rail. I've worked on a lot of stuff. And in all these industries, they follow their own safety standards. People in the industry who knows what's what, they write a safety standard and the industry follows it. The car companies don't do that. There are safety standards for this technology and the companies are not following them. They won't say they're following them, and it's pretty obvious in some cases they for sure are not following them. Uh, and so we don't know how this is going to turn out, and they're not even following their own good practices. That sounds like a problem to me. Finally, they will argue that future net risk improvement justifies taking chances. They'll say basically, yeah, yeah, we had a small crash, but we're going to fix it, and, and we're busy saving lives here, so give us some slack. Well, we don't know how the saving lives part is going to turn out. I certainly hope they do, but we don't know how long that's going to take. Is it going to be one year, five, 10, 20? We don't know. Meanwhile, what I would recommend is that policies should not be based on, for sure we're saving lives, so it's okay to have a bunch of harm now. I think that's the wrong idea. I think you should base a no harm deployment strategy. First, do no harm as you're deploying this technology, and then you'll get the benefits in due course because no one knows how long that will take. There's regulation. Now, one thing you'll hear is the federal government says that they've certified this technology, and it doesn't necessarily mean what you think. The federal regulations have nothing to do with the safety of the computer driver. 
they have to do with the airbags and the headlights and what happens if there's no steering wheel, how do we test the airbags and the headlights and, and other things. And that's important and it absolutely should be happen, but it says nothing at all about the safety of the actual automated driving function. What the feds do is they wait for crashes or reports of bad things and then they initiate investigations and recalls. So the fact that the feds allow this technology on the road is not predictive of eventual safety. The same with the state. The state will issue driver's license based on uh, not having had crashes during testing and having insurance. But again, both the feds and the states are saying, yeah, these companies self-certify that they're doing whatever they think makes sense, they're putting out on the road, and we're going to keep an eye out and see how it turns out. So you cannot count on the companies having independent supervision for safety. They're going to do what they're going to do in the face of all the financial and other incentives they face. In terms of societal benefit, it's important to realize that the benefits accrue only after the automated vehicles are safe, reliable, and trusted, and we have a lot more work to go on those. Getting it to work going down the street most of the time is incredibly impressive. It's taken 25 years or more, but there's still a lot more to be done to get the safe and reliable going. One of the trade-offs you're seeing is they'll stop a vehicle because they're worried about safety, and, and okay, fair enough. I'd rather have it stopped than not if you're worried about safety, but leaving it there for minutes or, or tens of minutes or, or maybe even hours is a problem because that affects public safety. So they should be able to take these things and pull them out to the side of the road as well as a human driver would have done in that circumstance if you really want to be out on the road uh, in public traffic. If you're going to say we're going to get societal benefit, uh, so we should promote this technology, uh, it's fair to ask what benefit you'll get when. Not only improve safety on some timeline, okay, that's great. Uh, we certainly hope that will happen. But what about things like accessibility and equity? We saw California PUC sold on those topics, but we didn't see a requirement for the companies to actually deliver. And I'm aware there's a wheelchair accessible prototype, but when will that deploy? And there will be, will there be enough vehicles to make a difference? Uh, if the regulators wanna see the benefits, they're gonna have to require them for the businesses to spend the resources doing that. Promises are nice, but a requirement is better. Uh, also, what about public costs? What public costs are gonna be right now uh, and I'm not going to go over this in detail. We've, we've heard about these, but there are some things that are going to happen in the near term that are costs, and you have to make sure that the promised benefits that will happen someday will get you there. So my last slide, my recommendations to the city, require outcome-based metrics. It's important that fatalities not be the centerpiece. No fatalities for multiple years is table stakes. The numbers as such is it's nowhere near time for fatality. It just shouldn't happen. Let's move on and talk about the other things because that's table stakes. There should be reports of injuries, crashes, road route violations, emergency respond, uh, responder disruption, things like this. They have to be given to the city for the city to perform its function of managing its roadways. Uh, and right now the car, the car companies, the auto automated vehicle companies are, are trying to be as opaque as possible. Uh, and a lot of these things as you heard are not being reported. They need to be reported so we can understand the impact of this technology on the city to operate. Finally, safety and trust come from transparency. The technology is not gonna succeed without public trust and, and we're not doing very well on that right now. I think that good transparent metrics from the cities that have been independently vetted will actually go a long way to giving these companies the trust they need and ultimately helping with the success of the technology. Thank you for considering my comments. Thank you, uh, Professor Koopman, and that is our presentation, yes? All right, uh, Commissioner Peskin. Thank you, Chair Mandelman. 
let me just start by thanking our staff, Tilly Chang and Jean-Paul, uh, as well as the staff from the SFMTA, uh, Julia Friedlander, uh, and our fire department, Darius Lettrup, um, and then actually raise it up a level, which is um, to uh, thank Chief Nicholson, uh, who courageously from the get uh, was quite willing to articulate uh, public safety and the interests of the San Francisco Fire Department, uh, despite a wall of noise from the industry. Uh, and I want to um, acknowledge all of you colleagues who in December of last year unanimously passed a uh, resolution. And I want to acknowledge Mayor Breed, who not only signed that resolution, but have given, has given the space uh, to Jeff Tumlin and the MTA and to Chief Nicholson and the Fire Department to stand up for what is right in the interests of public safety of the people of the city and county of San Francisco um, as uh, this technology is being deployed. I, I wanted to start with a very obvious threshold question, which is uh, to Director Chang. Did we invite Cruz and Waymo and Zooks to this meeting? Yes, Commissioner, we did. All three operators declined to attend this morning. Two did send letters. Uh, that is Waymo and Cruz. Uh, Zooks mentioned that they are currently not testing driverlessly in San Francisco. They're testing with a safety operator, so they have no further uh, comment. Okay, so I think, look, this is obviously and will continue to be an evolving uh, field of public policy. Um, so I, I just wanted to do this at a high level and, and really talk about the experience that San Francisco is having relative to the role that we don't seem to be able to play as a function of state and federal preemption. Um, and I, and I want to also thank and acknowledge the TA and the MTA for uh, standing up up in front of the California Public Utilities Commission in August uh, and asking, I think, for a very reasonable, sensible approach that Jean-Paul laid out in his slides, which was a incremental performance-based approach uh, that fell on deaf ears at the California Public Utilities Commission, uh, who instead uh, rejected San Francisco's requests and arguments in whole and uh, issued uh, permits for unlimited driverless deployment in San Francisco. And, and so maybe this is to Ms. Friedlander uh, or to uh, TA staff. A and I note that the California Public Utilities Commission really came into being around the issue of regulation of rail. And uh, in a dark period of California history, uh, that weirdly enough is repeating itself now where an industry that was not safe uh, and was immune from any governmental regulatory oversight um, led to the creation of the CPUC. And Jeff Tumlin comments very often how ironic it is that we, relative to our light rail in San Francisco, are held to a much higher, more exacting standard than the CPUC holds this emerging technology to, and if there is any vindication of San Francisco's position, we just got it 
whole hog from the Department of Motor Vehicles today, uh, albeit, I mean, sadly, rather late. I mean, these are the exact arguments that uh, Ms. Friedlander and uh, RTA staff uh, made to the California Public Utilities Commission that fell on deaf ears. So I guess my question is what we can learn about AV regulation from how the CPUC regulates rail transit. I think this is a teachable moment for the CPUC and the DMV, and, and as Professor Koopman pointed out, for NHTSA, which you know, regulates certain aspects of autonomous vehicles and not others. You want to take a crack at that, Ms. Friedlander? Sure, just quickly. It's a, it's a complicated subject, but from the perspective of our rail transit, first of all, we do expect our drivers to be defensive drivers. We hold them to the standard of, of, of having to avoid crashes even though they were not necessarily at fault. It is meaning somebody else's error doesn't excuse the error of a transit operator. So just that high level of um, professional driving is certainly a starting point, having the high-level targets. Um, the next thing I'll say is that um, those, those things that I mentioned down more at the bottom of the triangle, near misses, we are required as a transit operator to look at every near miss and we go over kind of remediation plans with our regulators regularly when we have um, events or near misses. Now I will say that the DMV um, event uh, action today, we have to assume it's based on their review of incidents. Uh, so, but these are some examples of what we can learn there. Um, there's also things to learn just from our local regulation of uh, micromobility. Um, we, scooters came into town, we had big safety problems arising them from them being strewn all over our sidewalks. We set a standard, we said you have to have a device that enables these to be locked and then you need to monitor them, you need to monitor the use on the sidewalk. I know that everybody's not um, equally satisfied with how that's gone, but we have made very clear what the expectations are and we've established mechanisms to, um, to ensure compliance. So there, there are a variety of tools like these that we um, would like to see DMV and the CPUC and it's uh, establishing. And uh, we, we know that they're working on that, uh, but we, as uh, John Paul said, we really look forward to working with the regulatory agencies on developing a more mature regulatory system because the, the system started being built when there were just a lot of hopes and expectations, and now we're seeing the performance, and we need the regulators to respond to that performance, as to be fair, we did see this morning. And Ms. Friedlander, when, can you elaborate a little bit when you referred to a safe systems approach, what that means for all of sure. us? Sure. Um, so we, we recognize that the safety of our streets depends on the decisions of, of lots and lots of agents. What we have been trying to do uh, for the last 20 years in San Francisco is to really rebalance our right-of-way to reflect our transit first policy, which is both a policy about the efficiency of movement on our streets. We are trying to build a lot more housing we need that how we need the people who live in our, our housing and what we expect to be an expanding population to be able to get around in the most efficient possible way um, that putting more cars on our street is not this not the answer to that but our our transit first policy is a is a safety policy as well as an efficiency policy and a congestion policy 
and uh, we have been trying to build the right-of-way to make it easier and for people to drive safely and harder for people to commit errors that have commonly injured people. This is what we see in our quick build projects all over our streets uh, that the Vision Zero program has been working on. These are all of a piece we need to look at, um, at how our road environment operates as a whole for everybody, not just for the users of a single mode. And Ms. Friedlander, you had one slide that um, I think should be very, very concerning to all of us. Uh, and I think you showed also, or Jean-Paul showed the slides of, and you just can't make this stuff up, the day after the uh, CPUC decision um, was the infamous North Beach meltdown, uh, which was particularly bizarre insofar as Cruz publicly stated the next day that the meltdown was a function of something that was happening on the other side of town at outside lands. So like why are 10 cars turning into 3,700 pound paperweights six miles away? And Cruz said it was because when, these cars are autonomous until they stop working, at which point a remote assistant has to operate the car. And that is done over good old wireless cell phone technology. And when that wireless cell phone technology is for some reason not working, in this case uh, in part because they were overwhelmed with cell phone use at outside lands, or in the case of a disaster like Lahaina or in an earthquake-prone region like San Francisco, there's no way to move these cars. And you bring that up in your slide, which is going to make the 80 incidents that the fire department has documented seem like child's play the next time there's a Loma Prieta earthquake in San Francisco and our apparatus has to get to burning parts of the city or a fire conflagration. And Cruz's response to that was, to me, uh, and I believe they've said this to the MTA, that they were going to build out their own cell phone network to combat this. I don't know how that cell phone network would be impervious from disasters. Do you have any comments or thoughts about that? That, to me, is like the most important thing. I mean, that's bigger than, you know, a fire truck. And this is, you saw that on his slide on Darius's slide, can't get out of the fire station, which has happened repeatedly. Um, can you speak to that, Ms. Freelander? Well, I can say that certainly this concern is one of the reasons that for years now, we have been asking for incremental approvals after performance uh, is, good performance is demonstrated. And we are happy to move quickly once we see the performance demonstrated. And we do not yet have, our regulators do not have clear targets for the industry to reach. And so there's not a clear method for measuring that. The companies are measuring for themselves. There's plenty of reason for concern in that. And we think that that is the, the right solution. As to what kinds of factors can lead to failures, um, we, these are black boxes. It is correct that when the capacity of the vehicle itself is exceeded, um, all of the companies have methods for human beings to assist the vehicles. And so you can see all kinds of breakpoints there that we would assume that uh, the industry is planning for 
You have to have enough people to be responsive to the number of vehicles that you have on the street. Uh, and those are real challenges. You have to know that your vehicles can manage an intersection where the traffic lights are out, or perhaps a whole section of the city where every traffic light is out. As humans, we know that there's a, there's a, there's a process and a courtesy, and it turns into a four-way stop. We know the rules. We are, um, but that obviously slows down traffic, and we, we need to know that the automated drivers are just as capable of operating in the environment that's not the normal environment, but that may be an environment that's significantly changed by a power outage, by a wireless outage, by any number of factors. And we can talk about this literally all day because there's so much here. Uh, but I appreciate it because this is really only the second time other than the resolution from December of last year that we've actually had a public discussion about it. So I very much appreciate, Chair Mandelman, uh, you're holding this hearing. Um, and before I ask uh, Jean-Paul to elaborate on some of the stuff he said, um, just as, and you touched on this relative to the CPUC standards for rail operations, but one of the things that seems to be wanting here is the state's failure to require autonomous vehicle companies to report what they clearly have data on um, because they have onboard cameras and uh, GPS systems and you name it, which is short of crashes that they are required to report, I believe, we can drill down on that, when they make illegal left turns or they drive into wet concrete or they just cease operating, which we now have a term of art for called bricking, None of that is reported, is that correct? Um, let me start with crashes. Uh, and again, let me be clear that the requirements that were put in place for regulation, that all the requirements were put in place before there was a single mile of driverless operation on San Francisco streets. So we do have to learn from the experience. But I think that what the Department of Motor Vehicles anticipated when they adopted their first regulations uh, was that by the time uh, AVs were in commercial operation, they would have mastered all of the skills necessary to be safe drivers on our streets. And so they required that there be reporting of all AV-involved crashes during the testing stage, but not at the deployment stage. I think they thought that there would be no continuing need for that. What's happened, it's been a much bigger challenge than the industry anticipated. And so right now, the California regulations still require reporting of crashes um, when an operator is, is testing, but do not require reporting of crashes when the operator is in commercial service. That obviously raises concern for us because we do see that the technology is still under development. It has not yet um, reached the level that we hope to see, or that the industry certainly hopes to see. So that's just an example of a regulatory gap that comes from the fact that it's really hard to predict the future. And when those regulations were adopted, people didn't think there would be crashes of concern at the commercial deployment stage. And now that we are here, we see that there is a need for crash reporting. Fortunately, the Biden-Harris administration um, very early uh, in their administration adopted a requirement that uh, crashes by AVs are reported to the federal government. There's some, some, some challenges with how that information is available to the public, 
but there are real gaps there, and the crash reporting is the best reporting there is right now. We have little or no reporting about all of the other kinds of incidents that may, that may be red flags that are important to take care of. So before you get to the next part of that transparency reporting question, just drilling down into your first answer, because it's kind of counterintuitive, which is you would think an autonomous vehicle with a human being in the car is by definition safer than an autonomous vehicle without a human being in the car. But what you are saying is that crashes of a driverless vehicle without a human being in the car are not required to be reported. Almost. Crashes of vehicles with or without a safety driver that are in commercial service are not required to be reported. So um, that was, that was a, might have seemed like the right thing at the time. It doesn't look so good um, from today's perspective. And we understand that the DMV appreciates that there's a need now for more robust reporting than what we see in the requirements today. And they are, it's a slow process to adopt state regulations, and uh, we are eager to work with them to make their uh, regulations more mature. I like your use of the word mature, and I hope that these companies as corporate citizens mature as well. So let me just get to the next part of this question, which is do you know or believe that there are instances where driverless cars in commercial services, in commercial service, are experiencing crashes that are not being reported? Um, I can't, I can say that when we look at the public reports available, there are some discrepancies in the reports to the state and the reports to the federal government. It has been very difficult to um, identify um, the reason for those discrepancies, and it's something that we're eager to work with uh, regulators on. But fundamentally, in commercial deployment, filing crash reports with the state is essentially voluntary. And so I think it's possible that some companies are making the decision to uh, file reports uh, sometimes and not necessarily file reports at other times. Okay, I think what you just said is yes. So, so are you saying, Ms. Friedlander, that you have an awareness that there are crashes that are being reported to the federal government, to NHTSA, that because of the voluntary nature of these yet-to-be-fully-mature regulations are not being reported to the state of California? We have seen discrepancies in the reporting, yes. And, okay, so let me drill down into that. Are you aware of Waymo reporting to the feds and not reporting to the state? I am not aware of that, and I must say that our investigation of this, first of all, is not like up to today, uh, and second of all, um, has not, uh, we, we have not drilled down to every single discrepancy, uh, but it is, we have noted that there have been crashes involving cruise AVs that we have not seen reported to the state. Uh, and I am not aware that there are crashes by Waymo AVs that have not been reported to the state. Okay, and, but Cruise is reporting some crashes to the state, but not other crashes to the state. We have noted that Cruise continues to uh, report uh, some crashes, so we, we do not know which, 
crashes are reported and which are not and why. That's so without putting visible. words in your mouth, this supervisor will say <laughs> that it appears that Cruz is selectively reporting crashes that perhaps are favorable to Cruz and not reporting crashes that are not favorable to Cruz. I think that is what I just gleaned from this. But b back to the balance of my question, which is relative to reporting of non-crash incidents, the higher standard that the California Public Utilities Commission holds rail operators to, near misses, illegal turns, bricking, is there any reporting requirement or any voluntary self-reporting that occurs? Um, as far as uh, the, uh, there are some very uh, limited reports, and it's a complicated subject, so I will say that there is very, very limited reporting other than crashes uh, from our state regulators and federal regulators. So fundamentally, there is crash reporting, and there's very little reporting of other events on our streets that raise safety concerns for the city. Thank you, Ms. Friedlander. I appreciate it. I don't know if any of my colleagues have questions for you. I have w one more kind of high-level question for Jean-Paul Valdez, but that's it. And then I'll relinquish the floor. Mr. Valdez. So just at a high level, and I, in a perfect world, the state legislature and the Department of Motor Vehicles and the CPUC would actually adhere to what Professor Koopman, I think, rightly said, which is a do-no-harm theory. But in reality, this is a game of catch-up. It's not the first mm -hmm. time that a new technology has been deployed. I mean, we had to play catch up with, you name it, Airbnb, the scooters that Ms. Friedlander mentioned. Um, and we are somewhat hamstrung given that, unlike scooters, where we could totally regulate on the local level, uh, that is not one of the options that is before us because of state and federal preemption. Um, and some of these things are obvious, like it is rather galling uh, to members of the public and the supervisor the notion that if you make an illegal left-hand turn, you can get a ticket, but if a driverless car makes an illegal left-hand turn, there is no provision in state law, nor can we legislate locally that that car gets a ticket because the way our vehicle code was designed is cars don't get tickets, human beings that drive cars get tickets. And by the way, this has been known to the state legislature since 2014. In 2014, there was actually a report that said, hey, state, as these things are going to be deployed, you're going to have to catch up your codes that preempt every city and every county in the state of California. But here it is. They're on our streets, and the state hasn't done that yet. So that's obviously a regulatory gap. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think uh, Phil Ting is highly aware of that, and presumably his similarly situated legislators are aware of that too. Mind you, this has mostly been a San Francisco phenomenon. I am very confident that when this is deployed in Los Angeles and Oakland and other cities, the state legislature is going to have to act. But right now, it's just, you know, one little San Francisco and one little fire chief. Uh, but eventually, regulation, I think, will catch up. What are the other regulatory 
gaps, uh, mm -hmm. including data gaps, uh, that you would suggest, Mr. Valdez? Um, thank you, President Peskin. Yeah, I mean, I would just reiterate, begin with the CVC violation issue, just because you not only, uh, again, just the fairness of they have to get ticketed just as we all and do. And CVC is the California, oh, the California Vehicle, Vehicle Code. Code. Pardon me, yes. Um, but because that will also be a tool for us to actually track their behavior and better understand their performance. So it kind of plays both ways. Um, another kind of important gap is this notion that uh, we shared, and so did Professor Koopman, with regards to the fact that the company self-certified their capabilities. So there is no uh, evaluation, no driver's test that uh, they have to comply with. There's no third party that assesses their capabilities. They just submit a report uh, and they move forward. And I think that we need a more balanced kind of system for that. Um, and then, um, again, the idea that cities where we're the locus of, of their deployment, we bear the impacts of uh, their uh, operations, don't have a say. Uh, is also a core issue that we believe needs to be addressed. Uh, we need to be at the table as these expansion decisions uh, take place. Uh, and then, again, data also comes to mind, but uh, I would kind of let my, my colleague, uh, Joe Cusillon, kind of share some of his kind of thoughts on, on the data issues. Uh, thank you, Jean-Paul. Thank you, commissioners. Um, I think Julia, Ms. Friedlander, referred to a bunch of the issues that exist with the data. So I'll just briefly kind of elaborate a little bit. It's not just that there are gaps in the data reporting, uh, that under certain permits, um, no reporting is required at all. We could even go a step back. There are so many different kinds of permits right now that autonomous vehicles are being issued. There are ones issued by the CPUC. There are permits issued by the DMV. Um, there are permits for um, driverless, uh, driverless testing. There are permits for driver testing. Uh, there are test pilot, uh, testing permits. There are pilot permits. There are deployment permits. All of these different types of permits have different types of reporting. Uh, it's completely incoherent, and as a result of it, it's very difficult not only to know about types of events that are happening that are not crashes, um, but that are also significant and impactful and indicators of issues, but even other measures, like just how much miles, like whenever we talk about safety, we always relate that uh, to the number of vehicle miles that are being driven by vehicles. And we can't even get basic information about how much vehicle miles are being driven here in San Francisco. So um, I don't think we need to belabor the point. There's tremendous opportunity for there to be a kind of a rationalization, a streamlining, and a focusing of the data reporting uh, so that the city and state and federal regulators uh, will have a better picture of exactly what's going on. Thank you. Thank you. And I just will build on one thing that Professor Koopman said, um, and this is kind of self-evident, but if this product, and I'm saying this really to the companies that refuse to come today is going to be successful, people are going to have to trust it. And the only way they're going to trust it is if they will share the data. I mean, professors are smart. They're looking at facts. We want to follow the facts and we want to follow the science. And it's rather like Kafka-esque that we're supposed to believe that these things are safe when they won't provide the public and experts the data to actually know that they're safe. So they're not building any public trust. As a matter of fact, they're doing the opposite, which does, I mean, it seems to be 
a bad for business model, but um, I digress. Uh, Mr. Velez, I apologize for mispronouncing your name for just a moment. Um, is there anything that you would like to add? That's all, President Peskin, thank you. Thank you, I um, very, very much appreciate the fact that the entire city is on the same page for exactly the right reason. Uh, the entire legislative body, the mayor, and the affected departments. And I actually think that we are asking the questions and insisting on the regulations that everybody in this state and everybody in this country ultimately need as we happen to be, you know, ground zero for the testing and deployment of these things. So what we're doing here, I think, is really important work and very profound, albeit uh, frustrating. Um, but for the record, I think that the work that the TA and the MTA and FIRE have done led to the decision that uh, the Department of Motor Vehicles um, did not want to willingly make, but that they made today based on the fact that these cruise vehicles are not safe for the public. And that's how that happened, and it would not have happened without your work. So I want to thank you. Um, thank you, Chair Mandelman, for uh, your indulgence. Uh, thank you, Commissioner Peskin. Uh, Commissioner Dorsey. Thank you, Chair Mandelman, and I want to express my appreciation um, to everybody for um, excellent presentations and to my colleagues for, and especially uh, Commissioner Peskin, for excellent questions. Um, I appreciate that we are being thoughtful and deliberate in doing everything we can to avert disasters from autonomous vehicles uh, for not getting the safeguards right. I'm gonna be honest, I, I'm equally concerned about the disaster that's looming when we get these, when we do get the safeguards right. And that's the massive workplace displacement that is coming. And I noted that um, in the principles for emerging mobility and tech from 2017, labor and financial impact are both key principles there. I think there was a couple of references to it. I know Professor Koopman mentioned the um, ride hail and delivery driver displacement. Um, just looking at some of the statistics I could find, 2016, the Obama White House estimated that total vehicular auto automation is likely to eliminate half to three quarters of driving jobs in the US based on the BLS numbers I'm seeing. That's two to three million jobs gone. I think that there was a Goldman Sachs study showing that at uh, peak saturation, autonomous vehicles will cost about $25,000, 25,000 jobs per month, 300,000 jobs per year, topping out around 2% of total employment. And I'm curious in, the, in, in what we are advocating for, is there a place here for us, whether it's as a county transportation agency or as a board of supervisors, what can we be doing to advocate for a just transition, understanding that there's a financial impact to local and state governments that are part of the socioeconomic safety net? Can I just, just, just ask if there's a place uh, where, where this, I understand that we, this is really important to have a conversation about safety, but in terms of policies we should be advocating for, it seems to me this should always be a part of this conversation. Director Chang. 
Thank you, through the chair. Thank you so much, Commissioner, for the thoughtful comment and observations and statistics. Um, I think this is part of a larger conversation and uh, the policy conversation has always included labor, as you note, from the 10 principles that both agencies adopted early on, uh, starting essentially with the initial ride hail wave with Lyft and Uber. Um, I think that when, for example, we brought the Loop project to you all, uh, your and your predecessors asked us to engage deeply. I think it was Commissioner Walton actually who said, challenged us to say, okay, if you're gonna do this pilot on Treasure Island, bring in the labor community, let's understand the potential impacts, but as also the potential transition and workforce development path. So pathways, as you know, are something that we've had experience in developing these transitions throughout history, and maybe Professor Koopman might want to address this, but we've seen this issue come up in the past. It can either be handled well or it can be handled not well. Uh, we intend to try and handle it well. We've been engaged with the labor community, for example, on the Loop project uh, from the beginning, and it's not uniform, there are many views, uh, but we will, for example, engage with the Teamsters as well as TWU and others, just to try and really get a sense for, well, what are the, what are the issues, what are the opportunities to understand what types of jobs are, in, are coming with these new industries, both in the AV sense, but also the EV sense, the electrification um, industry offers a whole category as well of, of new jobs, but certainly there will be um, uh, a need to include everyone in that conversation and to be able to uh, show and demonstrate concrete steps toward workforce pathway, pathways to transition uh, labor over, over the coming years. Great, thank you. All right, um, thank you. I, I hesitate to ask this question because um, I, none of us are, are the DM, no, no one here is from the DMV, but I would, I would note that the response that has been posted by Twitter, or on Twitter by Cruz, um, is that, you know, to sort of describe the action that the DMV has taken today as motivated by a single incident, and um, very much focused on that. And I don't know if they're, you know, as observers, uh, and people who are looking at the data, even though you're not seeing everything the DMV is looking at, um, it just strikes me that that is, a, that is not what I think we are seeing or the reasons we might be concerned about Cruz, and I don't know if anyone wants to try to address that response that has come out of Cruz today. Nope. Okay. Very good. Um, and then the I, other... Actually, Chair, I, can, I, can I address that, um, if I may? Sure. Um, what we've seen from Cruz is they've had incidents like a fire truck crash and some other things. And in a mature safety culture, what you would see in other places like aviation is after you have an event due to something you did not anticipate, you would immediately do a safety stand down and you would cease whatever operations might place people at danger until you had a review of all the facts and the contributing circumstances and made some operational change, for, such as avoiding places where there's a lot of fire truck traffic or whatever, until you can correct it. Uh, and what we have not seen crews do, publicly at least, is we've not seen them do safety stand downs in response to safety events. We've seen them continue operations. 
so I don't know. You know. We'd all be speculating which event it was that prompted DMV, and if it's really true, it was only one event. Their their public announcement doesn't seem to indicate that. It it has a lot more going on. But, but you know, I don't know. I'm not DMV. But what you really want to see from these companies is if something bad happens, there's a stand down until they can be sure that when they resume operations, the public safety is assured. And and that is not what we've been seeing from crews historically. So I. I have to think that this kind of reasoning is at least in the back of DMV's mind when they make this decision. Right. Thank you for that, Professor. Um, and then, you know, Commissioner Peskin uh, tried to take uh, Ms. Friedlander down the path of, um, of looking at potential discrepancies between what Waymo seems, the, the, the discrepancy that seems to exist in Cruz's presentation of crash data um, that we're not seeing as much in Waymo's. The other discrepancy that you can see in these charts, charts is there just appear to be, you know, there appears to be a whole lot more bad stuff happening on the roads, at least based on what we're seeing with crews than with Waymo. And I don't know if anyone, partly that could be explainable if Waymo just has many fewer cars out on the roads, but I don't know if we think that's true. Um, and so if anyone wants to try to address that, or if it's wild speculation, you don't have to. Ms. Friedlander. I will just address that by saying that really all we could do is speculate because we do not have concrete information. We have complaints and reported complaints. That's what we have. We don't really know the underlying um, number of events, and uh, we don't know the volume of miles traveled. And so this is why we think that regulators need to be uh, making information available to us that makes it possible for us to evaluate these things. But right, right now, right. yes, you have correctly observed that there Without is Without that context, orange. there's a lot more cruise stuff going on that you can see on those charts. We are seeing more complaints uh, from, that involve cruise. What that means is very difficult to understand. Right. All right. Thank you. Ms. Friedlander, um, let's I open. do have one other question. Yeah. I'm not sure who to address this to, but it was definitely set out in the information in the graph, which appears that one-third of the incidents are Waymo and two-thirds are Cruise. Is it safe to deduce from that that one technology is better than the other? I think that, again, it really invites speculation. We do not know the answer to that, and we cannot answer that with the information available. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Friedlander. Um, well, then, let's open this to public comment. Uh, if there's anyone in the chamber who wants to address us on this item, please come forward. And I don't see anybody, so let's, uh, open, let's check, on, check on remote public comment. Checking for remote public comment on item 11. Hi, caller. Your two minutes begins now. Hi, good morning, Chair Mendelman and Commissioners. Emily Loper with Bay Area Council. I appreciate the thoughtful discussion today. I'm calling in strong support of the uh, responsible operation of autonomous vehicles in the city. We know that AVs can provide a safe, efficient, and equitable transportation option and they're subject to extensive regulatory requirements as was discussed today. 
And beyond those state and federal regulations, we're impressed to see the AV companies working closely and collaboratively with San Francisco city officials and first responders to ensure that their vehicles are operating safely and efficiently within the city. We believe strongly that AVs can significantly improve how we all move around San Francisco, but we must actively work together to integrate these services into our transportation network to realize those shared safety, mobility, and equity goals that we all have. So look forward to working with you to achieve that, and thanks very much. Thank you, caller. Hi, caller. Your two minutes begins now. Hi, caller. Your two minutes. Good morning. Good morning, Chairman Lemon and Commissioners of the San Francisco County Transportation Authority. My name is Jackson Nupiers on behalf of the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce. The San Francisco Chamber of Commerce offers its support of the responsible operation of autonomous vehicles in San Francisco. Right now, we need innovative businesses to help revitalize our city and to put us on a sustainable path to meet our climate action plan goals. Autonomous vehicles bring lasting benefits for businesses, large and small, their workers, and local communities. Autonomous vehicles also create excitement among residents and visitors, encouraging them to enjoy and explore the city, bringing much-needed energy into the local economy. Autonomous vehicles also provide more accessibility options for the users, and we appreciate their collaboration with city leaders in San Francisco. Thank you so much for your consideration. Thank you, caller. You're muted. You're unmuted. There is no more public comment. All right. Public comment on item 11 is closed. Um, I want to thank, uh, again, our staff and all the city staff who have been working um, so hard to try to address uh, the challenges around AV on our roads. And thanks again, uh, Commissioner Peskin, for uh, continuing to follow this and help lead us on it. And um, I think with that, we will, and then thanks uh, to the DMV for, um, for uh, putting safety first. Um, Madam Clerk, could you please call item 12? Item 12, introduction of new items. This is an information item. Do not see anyone in the queue. Uh, please call item 13. Item 13, general public comment. If there's anyone in the chamber who'd like to come forward to talk to us under item 13, please do. And let's see if we have any remote public comment on item 13. Checking for remote public comment. Hi, caller. Your two minutes begins now. Yeah, uh, good morning, supervisors. Um, Roland Ferran, my hand was up on the autonomous um, vehicle um, item, but I was not called. May, may I make my remarks now? Sure. Through the chair? Yes, go ahead. Thank you. Thank you, I appreciate that. Um, I really appreciated these this presentations. I mean, they were remarkable. The, the level of details was extraordinary, extraordinary, and the slide that struck me is when you saw the, the color chart showing where the problem was, and, and it was cruise. And however got as far as it did, I mean, got on your nose. The thing that really struck me, if you listen to the entire conversation, there was not a single mention of Tesla. Not one. And that is quite remarkable because Tesla have actually dropped the approach that Cruz and Waymo and others have been doing. They actually dropped that approach three years ago. 
and they removed to artificial intelligence. They eliminated all these codes that all the other people have, and they're using neural networks. And the point that they are at right now is essentially the 16-year-old, you know, passing his first driving test. This is where they are, the, the baby drivers. The testing so far is 150 left. million miles. Thank you. 150 million miles as of last April. They're approaching 200 million miles. And I hope the day that they come to you with an AVP, you will put all the slow baggage aside and actually listen to what they've got to say and consider them. Thank you. Thank you, caller. There is no more public comment. All right, public comment on item 13 is closed. Madam Clerk, please call item 14. Item 14, adjournment. We are adjourned.